we are continuing to tune our ears to hear what the Spirit has to say to our church. And these messages from Jesus, they, they belong just as much to our day as they did to those seven churches in Asia Minor 2,000 years ago. Because human nature really hasn't changed in 2,000 years, has it? And so these aren't just some ancient texts that we are studying. These are like mirrors that we can look into and evaluate our own hearts and evaluate our own church. So turn with me, if you will, to Revelation chapter 3. We've looked at four of these churches. We have three left to go. We're going to cover this, uh, this one today, the church in Sardis. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father God, we pray you would give us the ears to hear what you have to say to us, First Baptist Church, and what you have to say to each one of us as members of your family. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's jump right in. You know, these letters are, are, are very uh, uniform. They've got certain characters, certain uh, elements and parts of these messages Jesus gives. The first one is always a characteristic about himself. And in this opening part of this letter, Jesus reveals that he rules his church. Christ rules his church. Now, all of these self-descriptions that start each of these messages, they all point us back to that initial revelation that John had of Jesus. We looked at our, on the first Sunday of the year there in Revelation chapter 1. And Jesus walks, if you remember in that original vision in chapter 1, He walks among these seven lampstands and He holds seven stars in His hands. And the seven stars represent the seven pastors of these seven churches that are represented by the lampstands. And Jesus is walking in, in among His churches. He's got authority over these pastors. But what I didn't mention back on that first Sunday was the significance of the number seven in the Bible. Seven is a sacred number that represents completion, wholeness, the Hebrew idea of shalom. Think about it. How many days make a complete week? Seven. And the Sabbath day, the day that God said should be set apart as holy to Him, is what day of the week? The seventh. In the Bible, the number four often represents humanity or the earth. And the number three, we think about the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Three often represents God or heaven. So when you add four plus three, you get seven. Seven represents the fullness, the completeness of reality. It's heaven and earth. It's God and humanity. 
Seven is a complete number. And that's why Jesus spoke to seven churches. It's not that there were only seven churches in Asian Minor that, that, that needed to hear a message from Jesus. It's not that the rest of these churches were perfect. Jesus chose seven to be representative of all churches in all places and in all time. So that's why these messages can be so relevant to us today. And here in Revelation 3.1, Jesus holds seven stars and seven spirits. And what He's saying is that He is the full, complete Lord over all of His churches. Christ rules His church. Paul talks about this in Colossians 1.18. He describes Jesus as the head of the body, the church, the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything He might have the supremacy. Jesus is Lord of the living and the dead. He's the King of all the universe. He's the head of the church. He is our all in all. He is sovereign and He is supreme. And as we mentioned in that first sermon six weeks ago, Jesus is the one who said He was going to build His church. Jesus is the one who shed His blood on the cross and died for His church. Jesus is the one who is at work purifying His bride to be presented to Him when He comes back again. It's Jesus' church. It's not your church. It's not my church. It's Jesus' church. And Jesus has a word for His church if we have but the ears to hear. And the first thing we need to hear, and here we come to the second part of this letter, the compliment. We need to hear this compliment from Jesus. Jesus told this church that they had a reputation. The reputation of being alive. Their reputation was that they were alive. Now, this is kind of a backhanded compliment from Jesus, isn't it? Because He says you've got the reputation of being alive. Now, Jesus said of this church, and He said it of several of these churches, and it's true of our church. He says, I know your deeds. He said it to Ephesus. He says it to this church. He says it to us. I know your deeds. Jesus, in other words, Jesus is saying, I'm the Lord of the church, and I keep my eyes on it. I'm checking up on you. I'm not disengaged. I'm not disconnected. I, I know what's going on. I know your deeds. And Jesus says, based on what I've observed, I see that you have the reputation of being alive. Now, we all know that a reputation can be true or it cannot be true, right? I mean, some people, they can put on a show and they can look like they're smarter than everybody else and they can look like they're more successful than they really are. They can look like they got more money than they really got. They can appear to be nicer people than they really are. I mean, we can fool people. You and I, we can fool people into thinking that we're cool and confident. We've got it all together. We've got all the right answers. We can make people think that. When in reality, we're insecure and lonely and self-centered and coming apart at the seams. And just like the church in Ephesus, the church in Sardis looked like they had it going on. They looked great to outsiders. This was a church with lots of programs. They had great worship services. They had an all-star staff. And they were involved in serving their community. People would drive by this church and look at this church and say, Man, that church has got it going on. That church is alive. But then the other shoe drops. Jesus brings them not just the compliment, the backhanded compliment, but He quickly tags that with a criticism. The reputation was alive, but the reality? They were dead. 
They were dead. The believers in Sardis were comfortable and content to rest on their laurels. They were driving on the fumes of past successes. But their reputation was without reality. They were, they were basically spiritual zombies. Now, you know, being close to Atlanta, I'm sure you guys have heard of the show The Walking Dead, right? You know? And, and there's all these movies and TV shows about zombies. I've never really been interested in zombies. I, I don't understand the fascination. But there's some kind of a weird fascination in our culture with this, this walking dead, this, the living dead. Zombies are like walking, grumbling, unfulfilled people. They're in limbo, aren't they? They're not alive, but they're not dead. And, and only their actions give the appearance of life. Many churches and churchgoers exist in an almost zombie-like state, don't they? Stumbling around, doing things that make them look alive, but they're not really enjoying the abundant life that Christ offers. They're powerless and they're lifeless on the inside. The city of Sardis was a lot like this church. The, the whole city was a shadow of its former glory. It was once a great city in Rome, but it was on the decline. And the church there had become a reflection of that community, glorying in past splendors, fixated on the good old days, but ignoring their present decay. In his book, Autopsy of a Deceased Church, Tom Rayner examines the reasons that most churches go into decline and end up dying and closing their doors. And one of the first factors that he addresses is something he calls the past is the hero. These decaying churches, like the church in Sardis, they refused to see their present reality. Rather, they were clinging to the past out of desperation and fear. He says they were fighting for things the way they used to be because that's really the way they wanted things to be today. And Rayner points out that it's important to reflect. There's no doubt it's important to reflect on the past. We should celebrate the heroes of the faith, even the heroes of our own church history. And we all have them, beloved pastors. Maybe the pastor that baptized you, or the pastor that married you, or the pastor that dedicated your children. We have visionary leaders that we can look back and we can celebrate them and give God thanks for them. We all know hardworking, faithful, sacrificial members of this church who are no longer with us. And we wouldn't be here today if it weren't for them. So yes, we should honor and celebrate our past. But Rainer also points out the irony that it's the heroes of the faith. It's those very people who sacrificed their way of life, their comforts and preferences, because they believed that the future held the best days, not the past. They made sacrifices for their comfort for our sake. Shouldn't we make sacrifices for our comfort for the sake of generations not yet born? Yes, we should respect the past, but we can't live in the past. Now, how do we know if we're living in the past? How do we know if we're just driving on the fumes of past glories? Well, you know, when you get mad and cling to things like worship styles, making changes to particular rooms or buildings on the campus, when you fail to accept a new staff member or you focus more on your own comfort than on the needs of others, those are a few ways we can know that maybe, just maybe, we're clinging to the past. 
And I believe that the Spirit of God is grieved by a church that's so content in the status quo, so comfortable with itself, that it's basically fallen asleep at the wheel and is careening towards the cliff of irrelevancy. And no amount of man-made efforts or programs will ever make a difference in that kind of church without the church waking up to reality, repenting of their sins, and getting right with God. As we heard in our Old Testament Scripture with that valley of dry bones, it is only the Spirit of God that can bring the dead back to life. They had a reputation of being alive. But they were dead. They were clinging to the past. They were living in former glory while they were dying. And so Jesus gives them some commands. In this next section of His message, Jesus gives a multi-part command and He gives a chilling warning. But first, let's look at the, at the wake-up call that He gives them. He gives them a wake-up call twice. He tells them, wake up. And that's the first step for a church or for us as individuals, for us to experience personal renewal. The first step is to have an honest awareness of what is wrong. Tom Rainer's research also found that most of the churches whose doors had closed for good somehow never seemed to see it coming. They were surprised when it happened. Rainer calls it the slow erosion. Basically, the decline happened slowly over time. And because of that, the church members lacked the urgency to make the necessary changes often until it was too late. It's sort of like that off-sided example, you know, about the frog in the pot. You know, if you throw a, pot, a frog in a pot of boiling water, he just hops right out. But if you put him in the pot and you just turn it up a little bit at a time, he never, he never sees it coming. And the church of Sardis was in that kind of slow erosion situation. Another example of this is, is in the Bible. And that's found in the book of Haggai. After the exile from Babylon and the Jewish people began returning home to Jerusalem, they started to rebuild the temple. You remember the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah where they, they, they fix up the walls and the gates and they begin to rebuild the temple. But then years passed and the temple of God sat unfinished. Why? Because the people got distracted by repairing their own houses, tending to their own comforts. Let me just read to you this message from God to the people of Israel. Haggai chapter 1, verse 1, In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shiltil, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, Well, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but you've harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin while each of you is busy with your own houses. 
picture it. God's temple. Dirt on the foundation. Vines and overgrowth covering it over. See the, see the decline? But then God speaks, Why did you not notice this decline? Why did you stop building my temple? I think God was a little upset with him, don't you? For over 16 years, the people of God neglected the house of God. It was a slow erosion. But then God tells them, give careful thought to your ways. In other words, He's telling them, wake up! Wake up! Stop focusing on yourself. Assess the situation and give careful thought to your ways. And the Lord stirred up their spirits to act and they began to build the Lord's house again. Jesus is giving a similar call to the church in Sardis and to us as well. And what is this wake-up call He's given to His churches? The first thing He says is strengthen what remains. Strengthen what remains. All hope is not lost in Sardis. There was a remnant of people who had not been stained by worldliness. But what little bit of life was left in this church, it was on life support. It was in danger of going out. This church had become so accustomed to God's blessings, they had become so complacent in their ministry that they were falling asleep at the wheel and they were leaving the Lord's work unfinished just as Israel left the temple unfinished. In fact, that word strengthen, when it says strengthen what remains, that Greek word carries with it the idea of making something permanent. It's a way of God saying, stop the erosion. Stop the decline. It's like if you came up on somebody in a wreck and they were bleeding profusely, the first thing you'd want to do is what? Stop the bleeding. When he says strengthen what remains, he's saying stop the bleeding. Now listen. Churches in North America are bleeding profusely. I want to share with you some recent statistics. Worship attendance. Okay, what we're doing right now. In Georgia, Baptist churches declined by 6.5% from 2008 to 2018. And you may say, well, 6.5% is not bad. That's, that's not horrible. But see, the population in Georgia in that same 10-year period grew by a million. Our state grew by a million while fewer people are attending worship in Georgia Baptist churches. In fact, by most estimations, 73% of people in Georgia last year didn't darken the doors of a church once. That's three-fourths of our state. Not for a wedding, not for a funeral, not for a worship service. They didn't darken the door of a church. Now, while worship attendance may only have declined by 6.5%, what about Sunday school attendance or small group participation? It dropped by a staggering 24.5% over the last 10 years. A fourth fewer people are going to Sunday school or small groups today than they were 10 years ago in Georgia Baptist churches. And baptisms among our churches dropped 57%. In 2008, we baptized 32,000 new believers, but last year only 20,000. And remember, that's why the population of the state grew by a million. And that's just Georgia. You know, Georgia, I've got to tell you, Georgia is one of the most evangelistic states in the entire Southern Baptist Convention. 
Georgia's the crown prince of Southern Baptists. So that obviously doesn't bode well for Southern Baptist churches, does it? So let's look at a few national numbers here. Now, there are roughly 50,000 Southern Baptist churches in the country. 31% of them last year reported zero baptisms. 31% of those churches baptized no one last year. Half of all SBC churches baptized one or two people. Half. 62% baptized five or less. 83% of all Southern Baptist churches baptized in the single digits last year. Now, by the way, we baptized 13, which was the best year we'd had since 2012. 13 is not enough, y'all. We should be baptizing. We should be reaching more people than 13 people a year. But those 13 people that we baptized last year puts our church in the top 10% of baptizing churches. Think about that. Of the 50,000 Southern Baptist churches, only 519 baptized 50 or more people last year, and only 191 baptized more than 100. And we wonder what's going on with our country. Lost people are going to act like lost people, y'all. They've got darkness in their hearts because of sin. Of course, the country's going to be dark. We're to be the lights of the world, but there are fewer and fewer of those candles burning because we're not passing along the flame. We're not making disciples. Church, it's time to wake up and stop the bleeding and strengthen what remains. Amen? Now, here's the crazy thing about the church in Sardis, and it's true for us too. They faced little or no persecution. Now, if you remember... As we've been looking at these messages, Jesus often says something to these churches about their endurance, their persistence. He knows the hardships they've endured, the persecution that they've faced. He makes no mention of that to the church in Sardis. No mention of persecution. No mention of being faithful. No mention of endurance whatsoever. And I wondered why. I did a little bit of research. And the impression is that the church in Sardis, they weren't making disciples. They weren't sharing the gospel. They weren't bearing witness to the lost. They weren't. They were a church that baptized zero. So the community around them may have seen a respectable church, but they saw a church that was neither desirable nor dangerous. They were a decent church with a dying witness and decaying ministries. You see, Satan doesn't have to attack us from without if he can woo us to asleep from within. And that's what he did to Sardis. They weren't a threat. That's why Peter warns us in 1 Peter 5, 8, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Peter is saying, wake up, strengthen what remains, because the devil's on the prowl. And if he catches you asleep, he's going to gobble you up. My goodness, the feast Satan must be having today on North American churches. But that's not all, guys. Jesus goes on. He doesn't just give this wake-up call and say, strengthen what remains. Stop the bleeding. 
That's just so reactive. He gives us something proactive. He gives us a formula for revival. And it's three simple steps. It's remember, obey, and repent. Now these are the same instructions that He gave the church in Ephesus. You may remember in Revelation 2.5, He said, Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things that you did at first. Consider what you used to do. Remember the things that you were taught. Remembering is a good spiritual discipline, isn't it? It's good to remember the past. It's good to, re- to guard our heritage. But it's not just enough to be true to our heritage and celebrate what God once did. We need to be active in our faith today. We need to allow God to move and work in and through us in the world as it is now, not the world it was in the 80s or the 50s. We need to stay connected to the vine and produce the fruit of Christ's character, the fruit of new disciples. And listen, I'm excited. I'm excited about the work of our strategic revitalization team. This group of 20 people, we have spent several months now working for this church on a strategy to help us strengthen what remains and to remember and obey and repent and be the church God would have us to be. We spent several weeks remembering, considering our church's storied past, celebrating the victories along the way. We reflected on Hall of Fame stories, many of them shared by you with myself and members of the team. We talked about past events and programs and trips and people who have influenced and shaped our church. And we used those reflections and those discussions to guide us in helping to identify what makes our church unique. What gives First Baptist Thompson its one-of-a-kind personality? These past stories are continuing to help shape our missional mandate, our values and measures, and even a a disciple-making strategy for our church. And I cannot wait to share all of this with you next month. In fact, I want you to mark it down on March the 24th and March the 31st at 5.30 in the Fellowship Hall. We're going to take two weeks to present to you the team's findings and our proposed strategy for church revitalization. And then we're going to vote on whether or not to adopt that proposal on Sunday morning, April the 7th. These are going to be important days in the life of our church, and I want every single one of you to be a part of it. And as a a part of all of this, I'm also excited that we're going to have with us in a joint combined Sunday school class and in worship that morning, Dr. Steve Parr. Now, Dr. Steve Parr, he is on staff at the Georgia Baptist Mission Board. He is, he is an expert in the state of Georgia on evangelism, particularly in dealing with the next generation. With, and that's, that's everybody from infants through college. How do we reach and keep this next generation in our church? How do, we, how do we stop the bleed and stem the tide? How do we begin to reverse things and gain momentum and reach the next generation for Jesus Christ? Because if we don't, if we don't, heaven help us. So that, that Sunday morning, March the 31st, we're going to be blessed by what Dr. Parr has to say to us. So what happens if we don't wake up? What happens if we don't strengthen what remains and remember and repent and obey? Well, Jesus pairs His wake-up call with a warning. And look at that warning there in verse 3. 
If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Now, obviously, Jesus isn't a criminal, right? We can all agree, Jesus isn't a criminal. He may have died between two thieves, but Jesus is no thief. But Jesus is using this shocking illustration to get the church's attention. And he's saying, if you don't wake up, I'm going to come in judgment on you the way a thief comes on a sleeping sentry. And you're not going to see it coming, and you're not going to know, but I'm coming. I mean, you think about it. If I told you that you better not go to sleep tonight because I know a thief's coming to your house, you going to get any rest tonight? No. I mean, this is one way to unsettle our slumber, right? So Jesus is trying to shock us awake. And it's interesting when you look at these, all these messages, Jesus warned churches in different ways. In Ephesus, He warned them that He was going to remove their lampstand. In Pergamum, He said He was going to come and make war against them with the sword of the Spirit. And here Jesus is warning Sardis that He's going to come on them like a thief, unsuspected in the night, if they don't wake up. And I'm glad to say that I believe that we as a church, I believe that we are waking up. I believe that we are in the process of strengthening what is good and repenting of and changing where we've been disobedient or negligent. And so I think that this next part is especially for us an encouraging promise to those who do wake up. Jesus makes a commitment that if they wake up, if they overcome, their security is found in His victory. See, most dying churches still have a remnant of dedicated people who are still on mission. They're still looking to Jesus above all. They've not defiled their garments with worldly ways. And so Jesus uses this interesting metaphor about white robes. Now, as we've seen before, Jesus likes to kind of personalize his metaphors with particular locations. And Sardis was well known for their woolen garment manufacturing. They made clothes. They were in textiles. And if you pair that with the Roman practice that when an army came home victorious from a battle, all the soldiers would wear, these victorious warriors would wear white togas and they would parade through the city to Caesar's palace to celebrate with a great banquet. And as they would enter enter the king's palace, the general would pronounce each of their names to the emperor. What Jesus is saying is if we allow ourselves to fall asleep, We can't be victors in the battle over people's souls because we've allowed ourselves to become casualties. But if we remain alert, if we fight the good fight, Jesus will dress us in the white robes of victory. He'll parade us to the palace of God our King and He'll pronounce our names before God the Father. Jesus isn't saying that if we fail to overcome, He's going to erase our names from the book of life. This isn't about losing your salvation. Jesus' phrasing is very careful here. He's conveying, actually, He's conveying affirmation and security of the, for those who confess His name as Lord and Savior. Jesus is saying that if you belong to Him, He's not going to blot your name out of the book of life. Scholars say that a lot of the Christians in Sardis were once Jews in the synagogue. And when they converted to Christianity, their names were struck from the register in the synagogue. And some of these Christians may have even been threatened to have their Roman citizenship revoked. What Jesus is saying is that even if we face rejection from others in the world, our citizenship in heaven is assured. And Jesus Himself will confess our names before the Father. Isn't this good news for us today? 
Jesus has already secured victory for those who follow Him and join in His message and mission of reconciliation. The pressure isn't on us to win the war. Rather, we're simply called to be faithful warriors in Jesus' victorious battle. I want to conclude this morning with a warning and an encouragement. The warning, the overall warning of this message is simple. Let's not grow comfortable in our church. Let's not be content with past successes. Let's not assume our best days are behind us or we'll find ourselves in the slow erosion of a feeble church. And here's the encouragement. No church is beyond hope. No Christian is beyond hope. So long as we're willing to wake up, strengthen what remains, follow Jesus into the battle for souls, do the work, of making disciples. And if we do, we will overcome. And we'll find the security of our future is in Christ's past victory. Amen. Jesus has already fought the battle. He's already defeated sin and death. And if you surrender your life to Him, if you join Him, He promises that someday you're going to wear that white robe of victory. Today you can know the peace, love, and joy of Jesus Christ if you will just wake up to the reality that you need a Savior. Will you do that? Will you take an honest look at your condition and come before Jesus and confess your sins and receive His gift of eternal life? Now, being a part of a church, coming to church, doing X, Y, Z, that's putting on the appearance of life. But you're still dead inside. It's only when we throw ourselves upon the mercy of Jesus Christ, it's only when we confess to Him our sins and beg His mercy to forgive us and save us that we become alive from within. Have you experienced that? I invite you to come this morning and to know the life that Jesus Christ wants to give you. Maybe today God is laying upon your heart to unite with this church. You know, we're not a perfect church. And let me tell you, there is no perfect church. And if you ever find a perfect church, don't join it because you'll make it imperfect, right? We're not a perfect church. But I can tell you we're a church that is seeking to wake up and to be alert and to pay attention to the world around us so that we can meet the needs of others with the love of Jesus Christ and share the good news of His hope with them. And if you want to be a part of a church like that, I invite you to come and unite with us. Whatever God has led on your heart, Let's stand together and pray, and you come as He leads. Father, thank You for this message, a message that we all need to hear. Father, it's so easy for us to get lulled to sleep. It's so easy for us to get fat and happy and comfortable with all the blessings that You've given us. Lord, most of the people in this room, we don't really know what real want is in this country. We have so much and so many options and so many things to occupy our time and our focus that we fall asleep and we forget the things that really matter. We forget that hell is real and it's eternal and it's hot. And we forget that there are people around us every day and that's their destiny unless we stop in their lives and share the gospel with them so that they can come to faith in Christ and be saved. God, wake us up. Wake us up to the needs around us. Wake us up to the needs of our family and our friends and our classmates and our co-workers. Wake us up to the role that You've given us to be Your ambassadors, to share that good news and to change their destiny. Forgive us, God. 
Forgive us as individuals and as a church. Forgive us as a denomination for being asleep at the wheel. While people slip into a Christless eternity. God, stir within us a passion and a burden to motivate us to wake up. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.